0: And turn to the book of Daniel. We have been for the past several weeks in a series called Natural Authority versus Spiritual Power and Spiritual Power. And, and we have been looking specifically at the interaction and the tension points between the prophets and some of the kings. I believe today that we're going to begin to make a little bit of a turn in that. And I think that it will become obvious as we get to it. But I'm going to read to you the entire first chapter of Daniel today so that you can get the context of what's taking place. And I do want to say at the beginning of this, I'm so grateful for Dr. Alistair Beggs and Mark Rutland and David Jeremiah for some of the material that have been so helpful in the putting together of this series. So if you have an actual Bible, would you open it? If you have an electronic Bible, if you would take a look. And if you don't have one, you can read the screen as I read to you the first chapter of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem And besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasury house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to be entering into the king's service. Among these, from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission Not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Heavenly Father, would you open the eyes of our heart through your Holy Spirit and teach us from your word. Lord, we come before you today asking not that you would confirm what we already believe, but that you would mold us and make us according to your words, so that we could become more like you, especially in the dangers of this day and age. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will tell you before I even begin, there is no possible way that I'm going to be able to finish this message today. So you're going to get part of it today and part of it next Sunday. Three weeks ago, at the beginning of our missions conventions, our missions emphasis that we had, Jared Berry, who is our network youth director, preached a great word talking to us about the importance of being spiritual mothers and fathers and then watching as those that we have lead to Christ begin to disciple others and talked about the generational influence that each of us should have as it relates to our relationship with God and the generations that will follow us. Then last Sunday night, for those of you that were here for our prayer, Mel Freeman, one of our uh, elders gave a devotion at the beginning of that service. And she began to share with us from personal experience of what I'm sure many of you go through on a daily basis of what it's like as a public school teacher in the Syracuse City School District, of what it is like to live and uh, to work in an environment that is not conducive to spiritual life, being surrounded by influences that seek to destroy at worst or to dilute at best the testimony of anybody who believes in Jesus. And as she began to share that, was talking about how we can pray for one another. I began to recognize that I needed to make a shift within this series from just the tension points that took place between the prophets and the kings to the tension points that each of us live within as believers in an alien culture. I believe that Daniel sets for us a great example of that. And so we are going to begin to look today and move from the interactions of the prophets and kings to the people that were forced into circumstances that were not their choosing, into environments that were outside of their comfort zone, into environments that were outside of the spiritual conditions they were used to, recognizing it was not a conducive environment to the natural eye, to living a spiritual life that thrives. Once again, I am convinced that there is a great deal in what we study today and in next Sunday's study that will have a direct impact on our life and times as we learn about the sovereignty of God when He does things that we don't expect. And I want you to notice, first of all, in the chapter that we read that in the difficulty that was presented, that God did things that seemed outside of what we would plan, but it was well within his plan. We learn in verse 2 of that. It says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. In other words, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, the king of God's people at that time, was delivered into the hands of an enemy king. In verse 9 we learn, God caused the official to show favor and sympathy Daniel in verse 17 it says to these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding it clearly indicates to us that even though something appeared to be disastrous that God was in it even when it didn't make sense the historical incident before us this morning provides us a graphic illustration of the way in which the people of God are to remain faithful to God even though you are living in the middle of a totally alien culture. The answers that we draw from this often comes to questions that we ask ourselves every day, such as this, how can I live and go to my school? How can I work in this office? How can I go and work in the hospital or the laboratory In a way that honors God and do it in a culture that is totally alien to everything that I believe. How can I function within this? This was the question that was forced upon the people of God. And today I believe that God is going to give us some answers even though they may not be what we expect as we deal with the tension of living for the Lord in an alien culture. The first thing that we recognize is that the Scripture presents to us what is appearing to be an apparent disaster. We read of it in the first three verses. The prevailing peace that God's people had been enjoying in Jerusalem was shattered one morning by the arrival of a foreign power. The result was that the city was besieged, and the Scripture tells us the king himself was taken away into captivity, along with the fact that the army came through and took the brightest and the best of the young people of the nation with them. The cream of the crop were all taken away. And it obviously begins to present to us a problem that is both a practical problem and for many people a theological problem. You say, well, why do you say this? Well, up to this point, the people of God had had this notion in mind how everything was supposed to work and how it was going to work. If God is in it, this is the way that it's supposed to look. And their notion was this, that God was going to work in them and through them and for them in a way that ultimately would be related to their own self-centeredness and their own wishes. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when God has done some things and I'm going, what are you doing? That was not the plan that we came up with. And in the middle of all of this, we see confronted with us in Scripture that not everything God allows or God directs will always immediately be beneficial. We believe sometimes that since becoming Christians or since getting really serious about our faith, that God will in some way work out everything and all of his purposes in our life that will always be for our good, that will always be fun, and that at best it will be devoid of heartache or disruption. Well, the people of God in Scripture were about to be faced with a dramatic conversion of the way they thought, and it remains true for us today as well. You see, in the context of Scripture here, the people of Judah were convinced that the royal line of David would continue uninterrupted and undisturbed until the day when the Messiah would appear. He was going to come and he was going to take his rightful place on the throne and that their lives from that day forward be filled with victory and fulfillment and peace and prosperity just as they had already known. That's what they were looking forward to. That's what they thought the plan of God was. And that's what they had determined in their mind that the plan of God would always look like for them right up until the day that it didn't. Right up until the day that they were besieged and taken over. They thought Jerusalem would always stand free, always be safe, always be untouched. They thought that it would stand as a sign that God was always going to preserve them in peace. And then one morning, I don't know how many of you in your life have had one of those mornings. Then one morning, they woke up, and in a moment, their idea of God and his plans was shattered. It was trashed. Under the occupying of foreign forces and soldiers. Suddenly, their praise songs were being drowned out. Listen, they were being drowned out by the cries of their children that were being dragged out of their own homes, the cries of their teenagers that were being looked over and dragged out of their homes. And the theological problem arose for them when suddenly God was doing something he's not supposed to do, it didn't fit. For they had determined in their own mind which way God would work, and God was not working in the way that they had determined. Not only were their children ripped from their homes and taken captive, but they went into the temple, the holy place, and they took all of the articles of of God that were there that used to worship, and they were hauled off, and they were put into some other temple with a God that has a little g at the beginning. And they're in shock. And the people of God are going, this is not how it is supposed to be. How are we to respond to this supposed disaster? Where are we to go? How are we to explain it? And the question that all of us ask, how in the world will we ever get through it? Let's ask ourselves a question this morning. What do you do when disaster strikes? What do you do with your idea of God and his goodness and his provision and his sovereignty when what you expect him to do and what he does are vastly different? How do you face it when there's an unexpected death? How does a mother and father face it when after nine months of anticipation a baby is born and the lifespan of that child doesn't come anywhere close to reaching what they thought would be allowed? What do we do? when the relationships that were intended for our enjoyment and fulfillment end up causing us nothing but heartache and pain and mistrust? What do we do when sickness and disease is discovered in our body unexpectedly? What do we do in the storms of life that due to our theology of God only allowing nice things in life leaves us with the sense that when these things happen, we are disappointed in God at the least. And at worst, we feel that he's abandoned us and forsaken us. I cannot tell you how many times my wife and I have been on telephone calls with people that are facing situations like this, and we have heard these words, Where is God in this? What is God doing? I had better expectations of God and what he was doing than what I am going through, feeling as if their faith has been shaken in the point that I had an expectation of what God should do, and he is not fulfilling it. There are moments that we go through situations like this and we cry out to God going, God, what about Romans 8, 28, where you said that you work all things out together for our good because we love you and we're called according to your name. How does all of this fit with the unexpected that comes our way? The people of God in Scripture were going to face the fact and come to conviction on it that God was as much in control during the devastation as he was during the peace. Let that sink into your mind for a moment. God is as much in control during the devastating times of life as he is in control when it's all prosperous and everything that had preceded that. This is a hard place to get to But it's a place that all of God's people must come to. We know that God works in mysterious ways. But what happens when his mysterious ways are outside the structure of what our thoughts of are him? What happens when we build a structure by which we believe God has to work in and he does something that is outside of that? And we say, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. We thought, as the people of the Scripture were were inclined to believe, that they were going to sail right through to the Messiah being born, and then the next stop, heaven. And now look at this. Families are crying out, where is my boy? Where is my daughter? Where are my children? As the cries of their children are heard as they are being taken away. The real question that comes to each of us is this. God, when these things are happening in my life, where in the world is your glory? In all of this and some of you have asked those questions all of us I believe have asked those questions and some of you have walked into the building today and you're facing an apparent disaster but I want you to hold on as we move through what appears to be a disaster into what will become an obvious dilemma you see gathered away in this exiled location is a picture of what is happening to the people of God, and this picture immediately focuses on four individuals. And as we look at the life of Daniel and and the other friends that he has there, we begin to see a picture of what's happening in all of the people of God, and it's just focused on them. And here's what the dilemma is. What do you do when you believe something with all of your heart and you live in a context where the people around you do not believe a single thing that you believe? What do you do when you believe something with all of your heart and you live in a context where the people around you do not believe a single thing that you believe? When you go to the office, when your children go to school, when your students go to university, or you go to work at the factory or the gym, and you believe something passionately about God, yet you are surrounded by influences and designs and thought patterns and laws that are clearly alien to your faith. This is exactly the situation that was confronting these people, and it becomes very, very easy for us in the day and age in which we live to think there are a lot of similarities to what's going on around us. Nebuchadnezzar Brought them to Babylon, and frankly, Babylon was looking pretty good as you begin to read about it. Nebuchadnezzar made it really attractive. There were a lot of restaurants. It talks a lot about food there, and all of us know if there's a city that has good restaurants, we could probably be comfortable there. Melting pot of all kind of different people that were there, the types of things they could do. There in the middle of Babylon, we are discussing the fact that these students were being sent to the University of Babylon now I don't know much about Daniel but I have to believe that as a young man his mother looked at him and like every mother thinks that he's the smartest kid in the whole world he can do no wrong he's he's handsome the scripture describes and I'm sure in the discussions of their family as they were talking to him as he's getting older they're saying what is it that you want to study you're so good at so many things son oh you're just perfect." Where would you like to go to school? And I am certain that the University of Babylon was not in his top 20. And yet, scripture indicates that because of the circumstances that took place there, now he is standing on the front steps of the University of Babylon. And this is not a Christian university. In fact, it's not even close to it, it couldn't be farther from it. What do we do? Some people would say, well, we used to live in Zion. Now we live in Babylon, so if we're already here, we might as well just go ahead and live like the Babylonians do. Zion was yesterday, Babylon is today, we're gonna live like the Babylonians, and in an instant, they become absorbed into that new culture, and that's exactly what a lot of these people did. They were immediately absorbed into culture. Babylon became the great melting pot, and in a moment, the moment they were absorbed, they lost their distinctives of their faith in a moment we might conclude that that happened because some of them had no convictions in the first place. All they had maybe was just an external framework of religion. How many of you know there are a lot of people that are living their life with just an external framework of religion? And as a result of that, they live their life in great disappointment when God does something outside the framework of what they think he should do. Folks, there's a reason that we are in relationship with Jesus. There's a reason that it's not just the framework, but we let him into our life where he touches our heart, he touches our soul, and there's that inward motivation that says, he is a strength to me. It's more than a framework. It's relationship. And if your religion is merely a framework, when trouble comes, it will collapse like a house of cards in the wind. And there'll be nothing to hold you. It's only when it goes to your heart and lays hold of your life that you'll be able to stand in a day of trouble. And if it isn't, then you'll be absorbed into culture in an instant. After all, if you have no convictions, then what was being offered looks pretty good. Tell me if this does not sound like our world today. Not only is there good food... But if you're wanting to just to fit in with culture, you can say, hey, kids, I I understand that University of Babylon may not be your first choice, but you know what? The education there's pretty good. You're going to learn a lot of things. In fact, it says that if you graduate from this university, that you're going to get a great job with great wages and the possibility exists that in this government work, you might be able to work for the king himself. That's not bad. So let's not worry about it. Let's just be absorbed in the culture. And let's dive in and see how far we can go in this. And some of the people of God were absorbed by the culture in the same way that great sections of the church of Jesus Christ continue to be absorbed by the culture today. And after being absorbed by the culture, the church is totally neutralized in being able to do anything worthwhile in the culture. So that's on one end of the spectrum. You could just be absorbed. Then there's the other end of the spectrum. And these are the people that just withdrew. They might have been called the Hebrew freedom fighters. They were going to be the ones that went down and they, after being captured, were standing in the streets and they're yelling and saying, we're going to stir it up. We will march. We will shout. We'll yell you down. We'll stand and yell in your face. Everybody from Babylon is going to know that we don't belong to you and we have nothing to do with you. Man, will they ever know by the way that I'm going to act. These are the people that wouldn't fraternize with the other people because they are bad people and we are good people. And any evidence of kindness on their part is just a dirty trick. They cannot be trusted. And so this is the way some of them thought that it was a dirty deal just trying to sneak them in and trying to make them compromise. And all they wanted to do was grieve the way that it used to be when God was good to them. In fact, we find out about this attitude in Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4, that talks about them when it says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. In other words, when we remembered the way that it used to be. There on the poplars we hung our harps, For our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy, and they said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And we said, How can we sing songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And the answer is, Of course, you can sing songs of the Lord in a foreign land. We do it every time we gather together in this church. We are in a foreign land and an alien mindset, and yet we worship God with all of our hearts because of who He is, and the circumstances of our life do not determine our praise. Of course, we can sing, but they were determined we will not be absorbed and we are going to be withdrawn. And so, you have one group that disappears into the culture, you have another group that stand out and they are joyless and confrontational and become a real nuisance. But there's a third group, and Daniel was in group three. He wasn't absorbed and he wasn't withdrawn. Daniel headed up a group that, frankly, since we just got through this political season, and I'm so glad I don't have to see another political ad for another nine weeks. If Daniel had a political campaign, his campaign might have said this compromise without, or cooperation without compromise. Cooperation without compromise. He is not going to be absorbed into the culture, but he's not going to impugn every motive and alien that he meets. He's not going to assume that everything was bad about them. He's not going to suggest that everything they wanted to do was to drag him down. In fact, he was going to live in the culture in such a way that his life can make a radical impact on those around him. Folks, that's always the hardest place to be. It's the hardest place to be. That is why, when we look at the history of the church, we run from absorption to withdrawal. Absorption to withdrawal is just those are the only two choices that we have. And the challenge that Daniel faced and the tension that we face today that he faced is this How do we live in a culture where the earthly authority and our spiritual convictions? lead us into conflict where we can continue to have an impact on the generations around us without compromising what we believe to be true about our God. How can we live with influence? I believe that Daniel may have remembered a letter that was written by Jeremiah to the people in exile, and part of it says this in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, I want you to notice, God carried them into exile. It's God working outside of the framework of what you thought he might do. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that carried them into exile. God did. And he said, I'm speaking to my people that I carried into exile. If your theology does not make room for God sovereignly doing things that are outside of your comfort zone, you will either abandon your faith or you will cling more closely to God that you cannot predict. You'll do one of those two things. In verse 5, God says to them, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. By the way, he was not talking about doing that with the Babylonians, but that was within the faith so that they too may have sons and daughters increase in number there do not decrease in number there do not decrease also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which i have carried you into exile i'd like you just to stop here for a moment and think about this sentence seek the peace and prosperity of the city that i have carried you into exile we're going we're supposed to seek the peace and prosperity of an alien city god I don't understand any of this. God said, pray to the Lord for it. Get practical. What God is saying is this. If the city prospers, chances are you will prosper. The surrounding area that you are in will prosper as you pray for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So for those of us... (laughs) And there are many of you that have grown up in situations like me, that grew up in some very, very tightly held beliefs and backgrounds, and, and I've kind of called it, like, it's like a huddle mentality of us four no more shut the door. If, if you've grown up in that kind of mentality, this is going to blow you away. It's a real slap to our senses. This is a challenge to us to think that life could be in a way that we don't normally think of it, that we come to a place where either we are absorbed into culture or we withdraw from it. And then Daniel comes and says, let me show you another way. You can cooperate without compromise. And so contained in this letter from Jeremiah was the challenge to live in the culture that is alien, receive the education that's different from what it might be that you would have thought, but don't ever lose your inheritance. Don't ever lose your distinction. Don't ever lose the ability to understand that you serve a different God and have a different goal and belong to a different kingdom. And Scripture says that we are allowed to display loyalty as some of its citizens, yet all the the time retaining our communion with God and persevere in those things which are essential to our faith and to our witness. I believe it was Alistair Beggs that said this, and I jotted it down. Daniel 1 teaches us to remain inner strangers to a life and culture with which we are outwardly involved. We can remain inner strangers to a life and culture with which we are outwardly involved. So what does that mean in practical terms? And I'm going to ask if Kim would please come and prepare herself at the the keyboard. It means that the Bible teaches us that there's some things that we can say yes to and there's some things that we must say no to. And as we look at scripture, we say, well, what was it that they were prepared to say yes to? Interesting enough, they were prepared to let their names be changed. They didn't argue over that. Now, for those of you that are parents, how many of you named your kid uh, with a name that has a spiritual significance to it? You know, my name Doug means Doug from the Black Lagoon. (laughs) My mom and dad had no idea that I can make up it means King of Kings. I don't know. Some of you, some of you chose certain names for your kids. Can you imagine, based on the fact that you were people of faith, what it would be like if your kids were drug away from you? And the first thing that the culture said to them is, we're changing your name to reflect another God, another faith. Don't know about you, but if I went to a foreign country and the first thing they did was tell me that the only way I could get in was change my name, I'm coming home. And yet, these men, faced in an alien culture, decided that that was not worth fighting over. And they said yes to letting their name be changed. That seems like something pretty big to give up. So they were prepared to say yes to a new name. We also notice in this first half of the first chapter that they were prepared to say yes to going to a new university. According to verse 4, They went into a three-year training program where they were going to learn the literature of the land. They were going to learn the habits of the land. They were going to learn what it was like to serve the king. Totally alien to anything that they had ever planned. But they said yes to that. Because that was something that they didn't think was worth fighting for to keep their convictions. But if they had said yes to everything, they would have been absorbed. If they had said no to everything, they would have withdrawn. But they didn't say yes to everything they did say no to the food and next week when we get into this you're going to see the significance of what it means to have convictions and live by them what it means to say there's certain things that i can cooperate on there's certain things that i'm putting my foot down and i absolutely will not compromise my convictions on this and what that means i'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning and i'm so sorry that I can only get through just a part of what we had today it seems like an odd place to stop but we're going to stop here today because I really do believe some of you today are your lives are filled with man I'm, I'm facing an apparent disaster God is doing some things in my life or he's allowing some things in my life that are way outside the framework of what I thought my faith was going to be Some of you are in the middle of facing some difficulty in relationships that were meant to be for your benefit that have caused you nothing but heartache and pain and mistrust. And you're suffering with that thinking this was not the way it was supposed to be when we stood at the altar and pledged our faithfulness to one another. Some of you are in situations and you go, man, I I walk into a setting every day, whether it's in the university or whether it's in my office, and I am surrounded by people that have absolutely no knowledge of the God that I've given my life to, and they do everything in their power to tear me down. Knowing I'm a Christian, they make fun of me, and they do everything in their power to make me wilt under their pressure. And it's an alien culture, and I do not understand it. And in the middle of what appears to be a disaster, God gives us a choice and said, I will teach you and I will lead you and how to cooperate without compromise so that the life that you live will have a radical impact on the people around you and I can work through you.